Hello, readers. Just like last week, Katie had some technical difficulties with her recording and her microphone, and she sounds a little bit like uh, the robot that we put at the front and end of our show. That's our cat, Tub Tim, in the background. She likes to talk on the podcast, too. Um, I usually edit her out. Anyway, um, the audio quality isn't too bad, and I think we've got a good episode for you guys. Katie's audio should be back to full strength next week. Thanks for listening along with us. Here's the show. Interlibrary Loan The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood Hello everyone and welcome back to Interlibrary Loan, the show where we take a book that is very worthy of discussion and read it and discuss it section by section. We are currently working to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and uh, this week's section was section 7, Jezels, and section 8, Night. Uh, as always, I'm Kate. I'm Sky, and I'm Lauren, and let's jump on in. All right. Do you have voices? You do. So you are possessed. Well, uh, so one thing in this section that we get is a lot, a lot more information. I mean, obviously, throughout the book, we know that um, the events leading up to the way that things are in the Republic Iliad, uh, have been, like, some kind of religious revolution. But we, we haven't gotten really too many details about it, but we get some more information about the nature mm-hmm. of, um, like, 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 the religious aspect of the society. Like, like, uh, the, the bodies that they see on the wall in this section that, um, of Fred and of Glenn see, um, and mm-hmm. she wonders if one of them is Jewish, but uh, but can't imagine, or, like, there's no way to tell, really. But then she talked about, like, uh, people, like, trying to pretend that they were Jewish in order to get on a boat or on a plane to get out of the country uh, when things were happening. Yeah, and we also got a... They kind of she kind of completed the parentheses on something that came up earlier in the novel, which I don't think we talked about in the first section, but we find out why of Glenn used the word Mayday early on in the novel. Right. Right, because it was a code word for um, this underground network of maybe not quite resistors, but people who are at least resistors in their their minds. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know though. I haven't ruled out the idea that uh, of Glenn might be an eye. Are there female eyes? That's one of the things that uh, of Fred is uh, worried about with of Glenn that he might be an eye. Or if not, like I don't know, maybe they can't be. Maybe not like a literal eye, but like someone who would report her. Right, she might ride her out. Right, she talks about not knowing if of Glenn is a is a real believer, and and she said that about a couple of characters too. And that's it's just like the nature of the of Gilead and the way that their society is structured is it's very difficult to um, to know who you're talking to and how they 
how they really, really may feel. Yeah. But I think, I mean, I think it's like possible that of Glenn isn't merely just like, well, now we know that she's not a true believer necessarily, but she might be like all of, of Glenn's working towards sort of befriending and being subversive with a Fred may be in fact a, like a honeypot trap where, where she's trying to, you know, like catch a Fred. Um, I don't know. That would be the 1984 ending of it, you know. Um, but we haven't gotten to whatever happens at the end yet, so I don't know yet. You guys know because you've read this before. I don't know. No spoilers. No spoilers. You'll see. The Underground Female Road. Yeah. That one seemed a little silly to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting that the reason Quakers were able to be part of this resistance for so long was that at first they had this kind of gradual culling of acceptable and non-acceptable people in the, in society. And at first, if you just called yourself Christian writ large then you were okay, you weren't going to be targeted. So I guess the Quakers could could fall into that category. And then slowly they started weeding everyone else out, including Catholics and, you know, anyone else who didn't subscribe to their particular brand of Christianity. Yeah. And, but, I mean, the Quake, you know, Quakers are historically a religious group that have been willing to, um, like, subvert the wishes of the state you know, in the service of their religious beliefs. Um, I mean, they were some of the major builders uh, of the Underground Railroad. Um, and as pacifists, they've been, uh, they've worked counter to many of America's wars throughout history. So uh, I guess not surprising to see Quakers operating the Underground Female Road. Oh, sure. Yeah, I think, it, you know, I think it makes total sense that Quakers are part of this underground resistance i uh i just thought it was fitting that since so much of the republic of gilead seems to rely on evangelical culture uh that they would choose to identify certain sects of christianity as actually not being christians because i as someone who grew up in an evangelical family and community there were certain sects of christianity that were not considered actual Christians, like Mormons, like Catholics, like, you know, anyone who basically wasn't a born-again evangelical. They go to the Pravaganza. Yeah, which I I giggle at that. I mean, because when you first read it, it sounds like it's just a Fred joking about it, but that's actually what it's called. Yeah, I, Pravaganza along with Underground Female Road is maybe are some of the like silliest terms in the book. Um, but the pra- I so the the Pravaganza is basically like a large mass wedding mm-hmm. between like women and soldiers. Well, it's yeah, it's it's young. It's the daughters who are being given away by their quote-unquote mothers 
which uh, I think I talked about that last, last time, that it's such an, an odd, you know, the, the word mother has a certain connotation. And in this book, it's so, it feels so wrong that the wives are called mothers. Well, and in this section, uh, of Fred sees a photograph of her own daughter and realizes to her horror that her daughter is growing up without her. And she's, you know, no longer the mother in her daughter's life, which is, you know, in in before this in the book, she's, uh, you know, she always, you know, has hope that Luke is still alive, but she always talks about her daughter as if her daughter's dead, even though that, you know, isn't the case. And now that she's seen evidence of her daughter, it's almost like she is dead rather than her daughter. Right. She... Yeah, and I think what we really see in this is that in this new family structure, it eliminates female heredity entirely. We just have a patriarchal male family line, and female heredity is ambiguous and interchangeable and not really important anymore. Mm-hmm. And we figured out what happens to Janine. Janine shows up to the Pravaganza not looking so hot, and uh, of, of Fred learns that uh, Janine's baby, even though they thought it was looking healthy at the time, um, I guess like didn't live long or had complications, and um, and then there's gossip that she, you know, uh, she in fact had had sex with her doctor uh, in order to conceive. It wasn't the commander's child, and um, you know that is par for the course. I thought it was weird that they had a banner draped over the door that said women's pravaganza today because aren't women supposed to be barred from reading anything? Yeah, that is weird. Well, didn't it? It also had, uh, well, I mean, yeah, it is odd that there's words on it. Um, but didn't it also have uh, and there's... the iconography, like the eye? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they said, and then... With the outline of a, of a winged eye on either side of it, God is a national resource. So that was written underneath the the women's pravaganza today bit. Yeah. So I suppose there's an exception for nationalism <laughs> and religious unity. Perhaps. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's an interesting note to make, though, because literally everything else is devoid of written word mm-hmm. yeah there's all these little hints that they're not as good at creating the totalitarian state as they want to be yeah but despite themselves the past keeps creeping up and their their old habits keep you know inserting themselves in the desert there is no sign that says thou shalt not eat stones um, so we also get some interesting circumstances for of Fred in this section from both the commander and from Serena Joy. So let's start with Serena Joy because so of Fred comes back from her shopping and Serena Joy is sitting outside in the summer heat knitting. Tells of Fred to, to join her that she can, can like hold the yarn for her or whatever. Um, and then, like, starts this, this conspiratorial com- conversation with her, like, off- gives her a cigarette and says that she can offer a, for a picture of, of her. Right, but in exchange for... In exchange for, uh, for Fred... Uh, sleeping with Nick. 
uh, in order to right. get a child in the family. So right. Serena Joy, desperate for a child, um, does not care whether it is with the commander or someone else. Yeah, and even suggests that the commander is dun-dun-dun infertile right. or, or this is, sterile. This is interesting because that's the moment when a Fred realizes, like, oh, she's being frank with me. Like, this, is, she's saying blasphemies that she would not ever say if she was trying to keep up appearances. Like, she is sort of putting it out on the table. Um, because she's admitting that her husband may be infertile or sterile. Um, so, uh, and, you know, gradually, uh, of, of Fred realizes that, uh, you know, the previous handmaids in the house, this, she has also made this deal with them. Um, and, uh. Yeah, there's this great part where Serena Joy gives her a cigarette and then just says, well, you know, get a get a match from Rita. Uh, and then there's this great little scene where she's trying to get a match from Rita and Rita's like, what do you need a match, what for? Do you need a match for? And she's like, I, yeah, burn down, yeah, the, house. Burn down the house. Yeah. And then and she then, gets back to her room and she's like, oh, I could burn down the house. Yeah, right. She seriously considers, brain, she considers doing a lot of different things with the match. She considers like storing it under her mattress. She considers and she's like, wait. I don't need to smoke the cigarette at all. I can, like, eat the cigarette. That would be cool, right? Or I could just, like, hide the cigarette. It would be my secret. Like, yeah. the level of deprivation that uh, Fred has been subject to. There's this you pathological know, behavior that happens Absolutely. Afterwards. I mean, this is what, like, if you read descriptions of what Holocaust survivors were like when they were, you know, released into relatively normal society after being in a, in a concentration camp, they would get food and like do things like eat cheese rinds and other like normally inedible things because you know they were they were kept in conditions of such deprivation that you know like they you sort of go nuts right it's like it, it's like her earlier episode of j- just having the urge to something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, exactly she can be like bribed with with nice things but but she but nonetheless, yeah, she clearly feels like she's hungering for these things because she's so incredibly deprived of any normalcy. Uh, even an ice cube is a treat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that and that's and then it's that um, she's talking to uh, to Rita, who offers her this ice cube, and it's yeah, it's it seems absurd that. Like the gift that, that Rita is giving her is an ice cube, but yeah, there we go. She's giving her this gi- gift too. And then the commander takes her to a brothel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the bulk of the action of this section, and it is a crazy, crazy trip. And he, like, presents her with this ridiculous, uh, like, negligee thing for her to put on. And she has, like, no idea what what he's getting at. And then he's like, I'm going to take you out. And it's, yeah, it's, this is so bonkers. So bonkers. Let's go to the description of the outfit. Yeah. She posits that it's, like, a stage garment, like it would have been worn by, like, a burlesque dancer or somebody at, like, a... It's, like, a theater costume, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a feathers, mauve and pink. Mauve? 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 Mm. How do you pronounce that word? I think it's mauve. 
Mauve. Mauve. Okay. Um, mauve and pink. Now he shakes this out. It's a garment, apparently, and for a woman. There are cups for the breasts, covered in purple sequins. The sequins are tiny stars. The feathers are around the thigh holes and along the top. So I wasn't that wrong about the girdle after all. <laughs> yeah, and then down at the bottom she says, and it's not new, it's been worn before. The cloth under the arms is crumpled and slightly stained with some other woman's sweat. Yeah. So she kind of breaks down. She, like, not only is this thing gaudy and horrible, but it's also used, old and gross. And well, and gross that's what and... I mean. Late, like later in this in this section, Moira says, "Like, man, it, like, why can't they just find someone who actually makes this stuff so we can get new versions of this stuff? <laughs> because all of the, you know, all of the whores at this brothel that uh, are, you know, they're also all wearing these like." used salvaged second hand like old gross falling apart like stage costumes and like like she describes this list of them they're like bathing suits cheerleader outfits costume like theater costumes like very few of these are literal like lingerie items because presumably most of those were destroyed and so now it's just like weird other things that are sort of like lingerie items yeah well um, and and like even if they aren't necessarily lingerie items, they feel like them because of like wh- what has become how gaudy and revealing. Yeah, they are. yeah, right. And like, um, uh, at one point, a friend says, "Like, there are a lot of buttocks in this room. I'm not used to seeing buttocks." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and she, he, he gives her makeup to wear too, which is insane like she's got like just a little bit of eyeliner and this like old runny lipstick and some some mascara yeah uh and then the the lipstick smells of artificial grapes <laughs> which makes, makes you think of those uh lip smackers back in that were, that were kind of like like oh a yeah. 90s thing but i can remember i can remember some of the you know that industrial makeup at this time some of the old stuff that my mother had in her drawer and would let me play with and it would get like really oily and gross and runny like that and i can just picture what she's talking about so so have there been like large leaps forward in makeup technology in the past like 30 years yeah okay (laughs) this is a world i'm not very uh familiar with so that's not that surprising probably especially on the cheap end of the market i bet it's changed a lot oh yeah absolutely uh but so here she is now in this in this get up which uh the commander tells her it's this is a disguise um and indeed it is right because at first she's just like cool are we gonna like have weird (laughs) sex now and he's like no i'm taking you out like out we're going out like what does that mean I feel like the commander is constantly trying to get Fred's approval and is trying is is always trying to get her opinion and he says he values her intelligence or says that she's an intelligent woman what are you person what what do you think and her she's actually she's not actually able to give her a real opinion because that's too dangerous so she she uses the cop out of, you know, I don't have an opinion often or she'll downplay it. And it's kind of like she's pleading the fifth in a way to, to avoid incriminating herself in front of the commander in, 
in showing how she really feels. Yeah. Well, but it, it goes like she can do that because that plays into their whole conception of women as like not wa- needing to have opinions. And like, you know what I mean? Like the only reason she can get away with doing that is because that's what she's supposed to do in her sort of role in society anyway. The submissive, demure, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Earlier in this section, the commander like talks to a friend about like, how this is, you know, this society is better. And he says, like, oh, you know, like, women used to be, you know, like, he, he sort of lists all of the indignities that the patriarchy foisted upon women in the before times and says, like, yeah, we don't have any of that now. Um, and then, you know, but then he takes her here where that's all still there, but way worse. But it's not really real right she says that she says she says this is like a movie um and then yeah she says yeah the commander says it's like walking into the past don't you think and she says i try to remember if the past was exactly like this i'm not sure now i know it contained these things but somehow the mix is different a movie about the past is not the same as the past right yeah that was my quote of the week Ding, ding. It's interesting because she talks about herself as a as being a refugee from the past. And this is like somebody who has bombed out your home and you're like a refugee in this new horrible land. And then taking you to this weird reproduction creation on the a, a, a sound set and saying, oh, look, it's just like your home that we bombed out. Yeah. But it's like a weird caricature of real life. I want to talk a little bit about Moira's costume. The whole costume, antique and bizarre, reminds me of something from the past, but I can't think what. A stage play? A musical comedy? Girls dressed for Easter in rabbit suits. What is the significance of it here? Why are rabbits supposed to be sexually attractive to men? How can this bedraggled costume appeal? And that actually is my favorite quote of the week. (laughs) Oh, there we go. We switched... uh, we switched favorite quotes of the week. <laughs> Yay! This will be a short wrap-up. <laughs> yeah. She was intended by God to be a virtuous woman. You have no right there. Her husband is the head of the yeah, I love that we get, like, confirmation that yeah. that, in fact, really happened. Like, and I was, her like... her whole escape backstory, too. Yeah, we get the whole escape backstory, but, like, that whole, like, daring escape shot by <laughs> Lars the Swede, like... That actually really happened. That wasn't know, this, a tall like, tale. Moira is real Moira. Um, and yeah, so uh, Fred says that she recounts like as best as she can. She says, I filled this in and tried to make it sound like Moira. Um, mm-hmm. But then, yeah, so we get this whole backstory about like the underground female road and the Quakers and and like the choices that you have between this and being being out in the colonies it's just crazy stuff and how ignorant people were of what was going on just a few years before that they didn't realize that the stuff at the center was happening yet and so they you know while of Fred and Moira were living this, the rest of society was just kind of holding their breath and waiting to see what happened next. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 oh.
so Moira is saying she says like so here I am and you know like this is her life now and she's here and she she even says to Fred like hey you could even do this you could you could last here for a couple of years um before like before your snatch yeah out. yeah before you dry up and then they send you out maybe I don't know um and of Fred's like she says like she is frightening me now because what I hear in her voice is indifference a lack of volition and yeah mm-hmm. I think that's one of like the most important lines in this section because like like the complacency if Moira can show complacency to the she's, she's given up given now yeah the rest of us to do I mean I think a lot of that is because we hear about the colonies in this section and the colony you know some of the colonies are the colonies are like work camps the the, the nature of the colonies has been very nebulous until now it's it was it's they're always described as a place people don't want to go but what they actually entail uh, has not been discussed. So apparently they're like forced labor camps. Um, and some of them are like agricultural, where you basically like farm crops. But those are not the ones that they scare you with. The ones that they scare you with are where you're cleaning up um, places that have had like radiation, uh, pro- like, you know, uh, like, I guess, like nuclear disasters and things like that. And, you know, they pretty much like work people to death. Um, and... Uh, we un- we learned from Moira that that's where uh, a Fred's mother ended up. Um, yeah, yeah, and a Fred says, "I think of my mother sweeping up deadly toxins the way they used to use up old women in Russia sweeping dirt." Yeah. Mm. Well, this I mean, do, um, I'll hint now, like that they used to do in Russia sweeping up dirt. Like, you know, we'll talk about this article. I think at the end of reading *A Handmaid's Tale*. But Margaret Atwood recently published a um, an essay in the New York Times about write about writing *The Handmaid's Tale*, um, and one of the things that it says is that you know she had been she was living in West Berlin when she wrote *The Handmaid's Tale*, and she was visiting areas of the Soviet Union, and you know this is what she saw. You know, in many ways, the *The Handmaid's Tale* isn't a novel about what could be in the future. Or it is, but it's also equally as much a novel about what has happened in the past. And so, you know, the the colonies are like the gulags, you know, and they're the uh, places where they're, you know, work camps where they send you to work, but they also sort of send you to die. Yeah, um, and this is something that we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, that reading this novel it's not really a fun place to be while you're reading it it's a place you kind of want to get through and get out of um and it's not in it's not because it's unfamiliar and in fact in some ways it's because it's a little bit too familiar and there's kind of this freudian uncanny effect where you see similarities in you know human society's past and in our present that make you cringe a little bit and worry for the future because we've done this before and we could do it again you are a what do you guys make of all of the like weird coincidences and like familiarities here like it seems unlikely to me that like or it seems improbable to me that like oh the you know jezebel's is a hotel that like 
uh, Fred can remember being in. And, like, Moira happens to see a photograph of uh, Fred's mother in, like, the film about the colonies. And, like, you know, uh, Fred happens to, like, find Moira. Like, you know what I mean? This is... It suggests to me that this that the Republic of Gilead may be very small, like a small place, um, or just a very localized place. But you know, Moira is recaptured on the off the coast of Maine, or you know, on the coast of Maine, and is I guess what brought back. It just seems like is a kind of a place where, despite all the horrors, everybody knows each other. America is a big place with you know what three hundred fifty million people in it. Like it just seems like. But if there's there... one big grand hotel in Boston that everyone goes to, or were there a bunch of big corporate events, or where that's where you take someone who is your mistress if you really want to, you know, play play it up, then that makes sense, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, but I think like like part of this is a narrative choice that um, that Margaret Atwood is making to like make all of these recurrences and coincidences and you know resurfacing of people yeah. from the past and things like and that works really well but it also sort of suggests that the Republic of Gilead is like not actually that big and that they like they're not moving people around the way that like in Stalin's Russia or during World War II and the Holocaust like people got displaced in a way that they don't seem to be being displaced here. Which actually destabilizes them. When you take someone out of their their home community, they don't know it as well, and they don't have connections and resources and a network. And right. So- Moira explains that once she escaped, like, she knew the city, so she knew places to go, and she knew where she could go, and that's how she escaped. So it just it surprises me how that it surprises me that that isn't being done here. Mm. Um, and it's just an interesting quirk of this world, I think. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Uh, Kitty, you were talking about like what happens at the oh, end yeah. in this. Yeah. So, so the commander has taken her to this to this room and uh, saying, "Okay, so uh, I thought we could, you know, have a jump start on the ceremony." <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm a very romantic guy. This commander. Um, she says, "Alone at last." I think. The f- think the fact is that i don't want to be alone with him not on a bed i'd rather have serena there too i'd rather play scrabble yeah yeah well and over and over again in this section of fred's you know and in a little bit in previous sections but this happens a lot in this section is a fred's you know describes things that the commander does like the commander plays a couple minutes of radio free america and um which is uh presumably uh broadcast into america by the cubans which is interesting mm-hmm. um but you know he's doing that to prove that he can to prove that he has the power to prove that he not only knows the rules and makes the rules and has all of the things you get when you know the rules and make the rules and follow the rules but he also has the power and the mastery to upend the rules and to transgress against the rules and to break but, all be- the rules and to complain about Cuban yeah. universal daycare. Because he <laughs> right, has bridged yeah. and because as I think Moira states, like the the commander, um, of Fred's commander is very high up. Uh, Moira also says that the command that that uh, that she that the commander has uh, has been with her and that the commander is yeah. not a good lay. <laughs> that's <laughs> that a very that's like just such uh, a very Moira dig to make in the middle of of her story, right? Like in the middle of it all, she's like, "Wait, him? Oh, mm-hmm, he's the worst." Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And she has a gauge for comparison because she's probably had to sleep around with the rest of the commanders as well as like Japanese businessmen and like Saudi sheiks and stuff like (laughs) that. So she can compare. She knows what she's talking about. So at the end of this section, she returns from Jezebel's and ends up going into the like weird guest house above their garage and uh, and getting fucked by Nick, the uh, chauffeur gardener guy. That part is really interesting. Yeah. So so this was that's orchestrated by uh, by Serena Joy in in exchange for giving the, the the picture of Fred's daughter and the cigarette and everything. This is a Fred is supposed to um, do her best to get pregnant. Yeah. So Fred calls it her stud farm. Yeah. Yeah. And so this in this section we get like three tellings of what happens uh and each time of fred says i made that up it didn't happen that way and then like she she tells it another way i wonder how that i really hope that 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 this nature of the novel is done well in the hulu miniseries that's going to come out because i like i really feel like that's um a fun thing to do with television where you like show the thing and then you have like a friend come in as a narrator being like actually i made that up didn't happen that way <laughs> and then like replay the scene you know with like you, you know i think that'll will work really well on film mm-hmm. make the audience uh not trust their own eyes yeah 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 uh so something in this section she talks about like like love and she says oh yeah this is what this feels like um, and that's one of the one of the instances where she's telling what happens and then says, no, I, it didn't happen that way. I made this up. But so earlier in the section that we've read today, was it was it Aunt Lydia who was talking about love? She was talking about um, she she was talking about it with the commander because he asks what they left out. Right. And she says and she says that you left out like love falling in love. Um, and he kind of makes light of that, like, oh, what do you need that for? Yeah, arranged marriages are always better. Look at the stats and all that stuff. But then you're right, Aunt Lydia, like, after that passage of Fred sort of flashes back to Aunt Lydia talking about how, you know, bad love was in, um, in the Red Center. Okay, how much is about within you? Well, so I guess you guys, you guys gave your favorite quotes of the week uh, since we like we well, went over them. We, we each gave the other one's quote of the week. So so yeah. now it's your turn, Lauren. Yeah. We didn't find yours, so I guess. So I actually kind of have a favorite page of the week, but it's just it's two passages on the same page that are amazing. Um, on page 20, 222, there's this passage where she, where aunt lydia they're talking about this is part of this whole women's culture thing again and she says what we're aiming for says aunt lydia is a spirit of camaraderie among women we must all pull together camaraderie shit says moira through the hole in the toilet cubicle right fucking on aunt lydia as they used to say how much you want to bet she's got janine down on her knees what you think they get up to in that office of hers i bet she's got her working on that dried up old withered moira i say so that passage is amazing and that was like that was favorite number one 
Um, and favorite number two is just a few lines down. So now I imagine among these angels and their drained white brides, momentous grunts and sweating, damp, furry encounters, or better, ignominious failures, cocks like three-week-old carrots, anguished fumblings upon flesh cold and unresponding as uncooked fish. So when you get a passionless sex, passionless reproduction, there you go. Rabbit costumes and three-week-old carrots. Carrots and uh, uncooked fish. Yep. Ugh. Um, next week, our sections are section 14, salvaging, and section uh, 15, night, and then historical notes, oh, which historical is notes a, are a great. sort of like epilogue mm-hmm. chapter. Um, and that takes us to the end of the book, guys. And by guys, I mean ladies. <laughs> Yeah, have we decided what we're going to do after this? Not really. Nope. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a surprise. We'll talk about it off mic. We'll <laughs> yeah. talk about it off mic. Join us next week as we conclude uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening. Inter, inter, inter library loan. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter we are at ILLBookCast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay okay okay, back to robot sleep until next week. <laughs>